You're listening to episode 132 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? A special thank you to our listener, Oliver Cruz, one who recently left a review for us on iTunes and said, 88 Cups of Tea is one of the best things to ever happen to my writing career. Every episode is full of priceless knowledge from fellow storytellers who are passionate about their craft. I love Yin's enthusiasm and her bubbly, positive personality. And not only is 88 Cups a wonderful podcast on its own, but it comes with an amazing community that is incredibly supportive of one another. We truly are a storyteller tribe, and it's an amazing feeling to really feel like I belong to this group and that we have a leader like Yin to foster and cultivate our passion and creativity. I am so grateful to Yin and Moonlin for developing such high quality and fun episodes for us to listen to. We love you guys. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that really sweet and thoughtful review. That just made my entire week. Now on to the next part of our intro, we have a private Facebook group. Our group is a pretty awesome place for fellow 88 Cups of Tea listeners like you to connect and hang out. We have storyteller-related posts where we check in with each other pretty much on the daily, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcasts and community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea. You get the chance to request who you would love to hear next on the show, and I actually just put up a post to reopen submissions for our listeners to comment with which guests they'd love to feature on the podcast for 2018. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88cupsofteacom slash FB group. It's so fun in there. And I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the most supportive and loving and encouraging storytellers. Join us over at 88cupsofteacom slash FB group. Now on to our guest, we have Eric Smith on the show with us today. He is an author, blogger, podcaster, and literary agent for PS Literary. As an author, his first humor book, The Geek's Guide to Dating, was an Amazon 2013 Best Book of the Year selection in humor, as well as a Best of the Year pick by Pop Sugar and Wired's Geek Dad. He's also the author of the young adult novels Inked and its sequel Branded. Eric's newest young adult novel, The Girl in the Grove, was just released this month. We kick off today's episode by walking through Eric's earliest memory of when he first fell in love with storytelling and how that led him to becoming a writer and finally discovering his immediate connection to the young adult voice and audience while working at an independent publishing house. We discuss how to approach opportunities working in different areas of the literary world and if it's necessary for our listeners to build a digital platform for job opportunities in the literary world. We get into the details about what prompted Eric to look into being a literary agent, his early days working at the agency, and learning how to negotiate for his authors and how negotiations are even made in general. For those of you who are currently looking for representation or are prepping to write query letters, this episode is a gold mine for you. Eric shares where and how he finds new author clients, what kinds of stories attracts him most when bringing on new representation, an example of a great hook used to describe a novel to editors, and going into detail about the hook book cook idea of writing query letters and how to best grab the attention of literary agents in general. 
He was even generous enough to read specific examples of exemplary query letters that caught his attention. We also get into comp titles and why they're important to include in your query letter, how Eric develops and guides his author's careers, and his role as an agent. Towards the end of this episode, we go through some really awesome and detailed listener questions that will likely help you in your storytelling journey. Listeners, be sure to head over to Eric's show notes page. I am preparing a PDF where I'm writing down some notes and transcribing the query letter examples that he reads in the episode. So it's easier for you to pull up as a reference if you're feeling lost with your own query letter or if you're not knowing how to write it at all. So again, be sure to look out for the downloadable link over at his show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Eric dash Smith. Now let's jump right into our conversation. First of all, thank you so much, Eric, for popping on this call. I really appreciate your time. Oh, oh, my pleasure. And also, I should let you know that you're super popular in our community. Yay! (laughs) No joke. Like, we have this Facebook group where I basically encourage people to jump in if they have any questions to ask the guests. And you had one of the most poppin' Facebook post ever. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'm like, wait, hold up. I don't think there's enough time to ask him all this, but it's pretty good to know that you're really popular. So that's exciting. Well, it's so funny because like, you know, like I'm not in the group and I had a bunch of author friends like randomly text me or like DM me on Twitter and like, you're going to be on Idiot Cups of Tea. Oh my God. I'm like, how do you know? Like who told you about this? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh. That makes me really happy that they're so excited to even reach out to you about that. So that's really cool. So Eric, do you mind me just jumping right in and asking you how you got started with all of this storytelling? Because you are so fascinating. You're like a unicorn. You're a rare breed. (laughs) You do everything. So I'm just very curious to just start picking your brain if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Legit, you're so badass. So let's rewind. (laughs) So let's rewind to basically your earliest memory of when you first fell in love with storytelling. Oh, man. When I first fell in love with storytelling, uh, that one's really hard. You know, when I was a kid, I was in lots of plays. You know, I did all the theater productions and all that stuff. And I I just I love being on stage and helping tell a story uh, with, you know, all my friends and the people that I adored as a child. But then one day my parents got me this. (laughs) I'm going to I'm totally going to date myself right now. But it was like this this word processor typewriter thing where like it had this like tiny little green screen that looked like an old school Game Boy screen where it was like green and like didn't really display much except whatever you were typing. You know, you type and your little sentence would go across and it would disappear because it only had one little line. And then when you were done with whatever it was you were typing, you'd enter and then it would just go and print out of the word processor. And you'd have like these. Yeah, you'd have like this one page, two page story, however long it was. You know, I was like 10. So I'd write all these stories and I'd bring them into school and I would give them to my friends. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I'd put my friends in the stories and I'd be like, look, I wrote this adventure about you. And I'm hoping none of them exist anymore because I'm <laughs> pretty sure they weren't good. But that's sort of how I ended up catching the the bug as a kid writing these stories for my friends. And then it, then it came like rocketing back back in college. I had like a mixture of really amazing teachers who were super supportive and, and constantly asking me questions and pushing me. And then like really bad teachers who like oh, no. hated everything I was doing. Oh, shoot. Um, so they kind of squashed your confidence a little bit. Yeah, but also like having teachers that like try to shoot you down is sometimes good in my case because it just made me want to prove them wrong. Nice. And then I did. So, uh, hell yeah, you <laughs> did. Um, you're like conquering the literary world. So, yes. I- I read in your bio that you have BA in English and also MA in English as well. Yes. 
so, you know, I was writing in high school and I was writing a little bit in college. But when I got into college, I got into college as a, a theater major. Oh, I wanted to write plays. I had this idea in mind. I was going to be a playwright. Maybe I'd be in my own plays. I had all these like lofty goals of that. And then one day it was like my sophomore year. My theater professor sort of sat me down because if you were a theater major, you had to audition for the plays, even if you just wanted to write. And for some reason, I kept getting these like decent roles and Ooh. I'm not very good. And he sat me down and said that he was like, you know, Eric, you, you want to write, right? You're, you're, you're playwriting. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, you're, you're just not very good at, at this part. You should be an English major. Oh uh, my God. And it was like, it was actually like the best advice ever. You know, it was like, he was just super honest. And I, I transferred colleges. I ended up going to Kane University to finish my BA. And that's where I became an English major. And I had these amazing supportive teachers that that pushed my writing. But wait, when he told you this, were you crushed at first? And were you like, what? Like rude? Or were you uh, like, oh, uh, I realized that too? I was a little, little disappointed. But I don't know, after sort of stewing on it for a little bit, it made a lot of sense. Damn. Okay, you're awesome. I love your personality. And it says a lot about your character. <laughs> the great thing about that particular teacher is that like he's like a he's a practicing actor. I, I haven't seen him anything too recently, but um I like that word, practicing actor. I've never heard of that before. I hear working yeah. actor, but not practicing actor. Okay, yeah, that's that's so totally I like that yeah. though. But yes, yes. Yeah, working actor. You know, he he would, you know, teach up at up at Ramapo and then every now and again I would see him on like various law and order shows. Oh nice. he's playing like a villain, like a bad guy. So like my wife loves Law and Order uh, SVU. Oh my! I was on we, an episode. No way, really? Yeah, oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Wait, so yeah, and then so he was on SVU as a I'm guessing a rapist. Yes, every time, <laughs> uh, oh every time, and there he would be. I'm like, oh look, there's Rich. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's awesome that your teacher got roles in SVU and the Law and Orders. Yeah, he was in the Lincoln movie. Really? He d- yeah, yeah, he does. He does stuff. Ah, oh, shoot, so uh... I, I fell asleep during the Lincoln movie because it was kind of <laughs> that was a really slow one, right? Yeah, it was. Damn. Okay, what was his character's name? If I watch it again, I'll look out for him. Oh, I don't even know. I have to, I have to, <laughs> well, I have to go on like Wikipedia. You're like someone with a beard, okay? But um, <laughs> that's so fun. So does that mean that you completely stopped with playwriting overall? No, I tried. I tried it a little bit when I was at Kane. I had a playwriting class. I had a screenwriting class. But, you know, I had this one professor, uh, Susanna Rich, she's a poet, who was really pushing my prose writing. And, yeah, I kind of think it's her fault. Like, I uh, I started focusing on, on, on stories and short stories and, and trying to write a novel. And that just, it felt a lot better. My best friend is a musician. He writes marching band music and other really cool stuff. And every now and again, must happen every year. We're like, okay, when are we going to write our musical? When are we going to play? <laughs> One day it might happen. So, you know, I was writing lots of short stories, trying to figure out what kind of novel I wanted to write. It was a lot of kicking stuff around and not really finding the right thing. And when I got to graduate school, I was writing lots of personal essays. I thought maybe I'd be an essayist, which I am not. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was struggling and trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And then I started my publishing career at a place called Quirk Books. They're a a publisher in Philadelphia. And we were putting out this book called Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And when I was working there, I was like the social media marketing person. I had to reach out to bloggers. I had to make the book trailers. I had to handle all this stuff that involved talking to people about our books. And I'd never read, or at least I hadn't read a YA novel in maybe a decade. You know, it'd been a really long time. So How do you talk to people about a specific category of books if you don't read those books, you know, like 
you can't. People will know. <laughs> they, they will be able to call you out, especially in the kidlit world. So I picked up a whole bunch of YA novels while I was working on like the marketing materials for that book. And I read Beth Revis's Across the Universe. I, I read Anna Banks's old Poseidon books. I was just picking up anything and everything I can back in like, it was like 2011, I think, 2010. And when I was reading them, I was like, oh my God, this, I think this is what I've been trying to find. This is the kind of voice that I like. Uh, I like this audience. I love the bloggers, you know, like I talked to a whole bunch of bloggers while I was doing the research. I just like connected with them so well that it felt like this is where I was supposed to be. So I wrote my first YA book in 2011. Yes, 2011, because it came out in 2013. It's called Inked. It's a YA novel about teenagers with magic tattoos. And during this time, it was like this really weird, turbulent time in my writing life because that was happening. I was working on that novel and I was just getting ready to pitch agents around when my boss at Quirk called me up to his office and I was convinced I was going to get fired for something. (laughs) And he's like, hey, we have this idea, this like geek dating book idea. You know, you blog about geek culture a lot. You write these essays about geek culture sometimes. Do you want to write this book for us? So that's how I got my first book deal in the most unconventional way ever. Are you freaking serious right now? Oh my God. I could just imagine so many of our listeners shaking their head like, what the hell? That's freaking Awesome. And that's not the way it happens. I mean, <laughs> from what I hear, yeah, you, this never really happens ever. Uh, hence another unicorn example. <laughs> if you don't mind me jumping in and asking as well, there's a lot of our listeners I'm noticing who have tried writing and they realize writing is not really their thing, but they still love this world. Ah, yes. Do you have any advice for them on how to approach these jobs or how they could find out what's a good fit for them still staying in the world, but if they're not personally into really writing their own books? Yeah, yeah. I would, you know, focus on your strengths, definitely. Uh, When it came to Quirk, I'd been working as a Oh, God. So I was working as a blogger for the city's tourism board in Philadelphia, like nice. writing about like cheesesteaks and museums and stuff. That sounds freaking uh, fun as hell. <laughs> it was OK. Yeah, what do you mean it was OK? okay. <laughs> that sounds so fun. I feel like so many of our people would be like, yes, I want that job. But, you know, like doing a lot of that and like writing my own blogs, I was building a sort of digital platform for myself. And Quirk actually came to me. I'd applied for a publicist job and I didn't get it. But then they had this opening for a social media web marketing person, like a bunch of mashups of jobs. And they saw what I'd been doing online and they called me into the office there. Yeah. So I think, you know, focusing on what you're really good at is a great way to make these sort of opportunities, not make them happen, but sort of seek them out and and potentially get them. Because when I was working at the tourism board, uh, I was applying to be an editor at lots of places. I kept applying to editorial jobs in New York. I was applying to a couple that I found in Philly and Chicago, and I really wasn't getting any calls back. But once I started applying for social media gigs and and digital marketing gigs, which was something I was already really skilled at, I got the first one. I got the, the place. So having building up your brand is important. I do notice that a lot of our listeners in our Facebook group, when we check in every week, we have this thread on Tuesdays called toot your horn Tuesdays and where I have actually my girlfriend made up that cute little title and I was like yes we need to use this so I encourage our listeners to jump in and share their achievements each week so every Tuesday a lot of them have shared their websites and Mm -hmm. I was so impressed I was like damn y'all are like professional some of them could be blogging like blogging topics whether it's about books they love or about food or about travel in this world right now today How important is that when it comes to finding jobs? I think it depends on what you're doing. In my case, it was the social media and digital marketing thing. Like 
if you don't have a social media profile on a website and stuff, it's probably going to be really hard to get that kind of job because they want to see that you're able to use that stuff. Like these days, I wouldn't be able to get that kind of job anymore because I hate Snapchat. I won't do Instagram stories. You know, like there's all these things that I'm just not good at and I don't want to learn. <laughs> so. I'm like, amen. <laughs> it's hard. I tried Snapchat and I just fell off real quick. <laughs> I'm trying to be good about Instagram stories, but because it's so closely tied, obviously, to Instagram, but it, it's like a lot to keep up with. And I just it I get is. so overwhelmed, man. I'm like, these kids these days, I don't know how they're using like eight different apps. At once. That ship has sailed for like someone like me. But you know, like, I don't want to only say if you're younger because there are plenty of people that can use these tools. But you know, if you're utilizing those tools, I think it's a lot easier to get those kind of positions in social media and, and all of that. And when it comes to like editorial and stuff, I, you know, I think websites and social media accounts are good, but there are plenty of editors that don't have any of that stuff. I don't think it's necessary, but I think it helps you when you're uh, researching an author and things like that. Do you mind unpacking a little bit about that? It's funny now, like thinking back on it, I actually don't think I would have been a good editor. (laughs) I think it's what makes me a good agent, though, is that I tend to like a lot of everything. I love cookbooks. I love pop culture. I love YA novels. I love literary fiction. And I feel like a lot of editors that I know, they tend to be pretty specialized. You know, like YA editors work on YA and middle grade and picture books sometimes. Editors that work at Places that only do nonfiction only do nonfiction. I wanted to work on lots of everything. So I don't know if I would have been a great editor, especially at the places I'd been applying. I love the honesty. (laughs) It just hit me. And I don't know why I did not mention this at the beginning. And I'm just remembering this now. But when I moved to New York City, I moved back to New York. I did a cross-country road trip to move our stuff in my car with my girlfriend from Cali to New York. And we did like these cute, small, little, very super spontaneous last minute meetups for the 88 Cups of Tea community. And I met some people in Chicago and in Ann Arbor. They're so sweet and lovely. I remember in both of those communities, they were raving about you. I don't know why it just hit me right now, but you need to know this and they love you. And they were saying the best things about you. Oh, well, I remember when you came through Ann Arbor, because a bunch of my friends were like, oh my God, you have to come this and this and that. And I was, something was going on. I don't know. I have the baby now, you know. It's, I mean, it's first of all, congratulations <laughs> on your baby. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's such an exciting new chapter for you and your family, your wife. And also about this corgi dog that I keep hearing about, who's like <laughs> so cute. I saw on your Twitter. I feel like I should put your corgi's photo as your photo on your show notes page <laughs> and put a hat on your corgi. Totally sidetracked there. Now, going back to your journey, we were talking about when you did get your role at Quirk Books, and then from there, they were able to bring up that once in a blue moon opportunity about the Geek's Guide to Dating, which is so awesome and insane at the same time. That's also where you found your love for young adult novels. And that's when you realize this is the voice I'm really comfortable in writing and in living. From there, can you take us through where did being an agent come in or were you still working on being an author? Yeah, I was still definitely working on in my author life. Geek Dating came out in 2012, Inked came out in 2013, and I didn't jump into agenting until like the summer of 2015. I loved being at Quirk. There are so many great people there. Some of the people there are still some of my dear friends who I talk to all the time, but it was sort of time for something new. I really wanted to, instead of just promoting books, create the books that I would be working on. And working as an agent offers you that opportunity. You can not only discover authors, but come up with ideas with writers and develop ideas. And that was something we did a lot at Quirk, or at least the editors there did. So cute! 
cameo. That's Augie. There he is. Augie. Hi, Augie. (laughs) Yeah, it was like summer of 2015. I I just felt like it was time for that change. And, you know, it's another super unconventional way that this job came along. I'd been following the agency for a while. They signed my friend Sam Maggs, who wrote this book called The Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy. So I kind of knew them, you know, like I knew the people that worked there. I knew one of the agents. So when the job opened popped up i sent like an awkward dm to somebody on twitter it was like hey can i apply for this is this something i could do and i did and they met me in new york for lunch and yeah they, they took a chance on someone that had zero agenting experience so when you started were you starting as like assistant or junior literary agent yeah i started as an associate agent so, you know i was able to pick up whatever clients i wanted and my team is great where they they will basically sit down and they'll, they'll pour over contracts with me because I quite honestly had no idea what I was doing when it came to those. When my first few deals came in, it was just a mixture of elation and utter panic because I had no idea what to do next. And sometimes it still happens. The first book I got to represent and sell is this book by Dave Connis called The Temptation of Adam. It's this really intense YA contemporary novel about a teen boy who's addicted to pornography. It's serious and you know funny at the same time. It's very John Green-ish in terms of the writing. He actually pitched me a different book, which we would go on to sell later. And this particular book he had already sent over to that particular publisher. And then they ended up offering on it. So I had to sort of swoop in and help them negotiate all of that stuff. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience because I, again, I had no idea what I was doing. At that moment when you said you had to negotiate, how'd you know how much to negotiate and come back at? I had no idea. How was your team able to calculate then and, and know like, okay, so the publishers are coming at us with this deal, but Dave's work is worth this much. So we got to go back with this percentage. It's more along the lines of trying to get things to be like the industry standard, you know, get the royalties to look the way they do for everybody else to try to get maybe a better advance to basically improve the terms. It's not so much that we feel like the writer is worth X, although sometimes they are. It's to get the contracts to be as good as they can be. And I had no real grasp as to what that would be. Uh, Even though I'm an author myself and I've signed my own contracts, I am not good at separating the business from the creative side of things for myself. Like my agent will send me a contract. I'm like, okay, cool. And I'll sign it and I'll send it in the mail. I just trust them implicitly and I don't really pay attention to stuff like that. (laughs) So your role as an agent hasn't really affected you in how you, I guess, approach your work as an author. I'm hopeless. My agent will be like, hey, we have a deal. I'm like, okay, great. Let's go. I don't really think about the rest of the stuff. I'm not the best author professionally. Um, I'm better as an agent, I think. (laughs) That's really, really interesting. How long did it take before you felt super confident as an agent? Maybe a year. It takes a while to sort of get a handle on those contracts. It's almost like reading a different language, you know, yeah, the legalese yeah. that's in there. And it still feels like that sometimes. You know, my my boss and I, Curtis, will we'll go back and forth and look at my contracts together um, all the time because, you know, I'll, I'll still miss stuff. So I'm lucky to have people like that in my corner. I just finished working on a contract just last week. And, you know, we were still sort of going back and forth on it because it's... It's hard. (laughs) Is it also your job to go out and actively seek and bring in more unknown writers and to develop them? Or do you, in a way, sit back and wait for the submissions to come in? Definitely a mix of both. There's so many great Twitter pitch events where you can discover people thanks to fun little hashtags like DVPit, which encourages like diverse marginalized voices to tweet about their books. 
that's a really great way to sort of discover people and other ways to be more active. You know, I like to go on essay websites like Catapult and, and look for new voices that are writing personal essays and nonfiction. So sometimes it's a mix of that. And sometimes it's a mix of reading the slush, quote unquote, you know, digging through the queries that come in and trying to find those hidden gems. Ooh, okay. So are you supposed to fill, and this is a question I've never asked any literary agent before, because it just hit me. <laughs> are you supposed to hit like a certain amount of quota of per authors each year that you're supposed to represent? or like hit a certain quota of the amount of money that you're supposed to be making off of like commission off of authors each year? Is that how that works normally as a literary agent or from your experience? Not where I work. You know, you could only represent 10 people and it could be fine. Maybe you only sign one person, but maybe you only signed one person last year. That's fine. It's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of on you to find the clients and make the money because if you don't, you're not making any money. <laughs> like, you know, you need to do that. I know you have your manuscript wish list mm -hmm. online. Could you share what is it that attracts you most? I like books that do a bit of genre mashing. For example, I have a book coming out in a couple of months called A Spark of White Fire by a, a woman named Sangu Mandana. It's a uh, YA sci-fi fantasy space opera retelling of the Mahabharata. So it draws in from all these awesome like Indian myths and or mythology, like that book is kind of hard to pin down and define. And that's why I love it. So why that does that really captures my attention. Authors like Adam Silvera are really great at doing that. Let me see writers like, oh, my bookshelf is in the other room. Adam's a really good example of an author who does uh, genre blending really well. And I like diverse stories. I like stories by marginalized writers. That's sort of a big focus of mine, you know, the books that I couldn't find on the shelf as a kid and the books that I know will, you know, serve my friends today <laughs> um, are the kind of books that I'm trying to find, you know, the most actively. Let me see. And, you know, in the in like the nonfiction realm, I like stories and, and books that make me think of like writers like Mary Roach, who kind of approach like science and, and history with a, a unique lens that makes it fun and accessible. You know, I like science writing that doesn't feel like science writing, where it's just interesting and engaging and, and you know, funny. Same thing with anything that has to do with history. Uh, engaging and funny is sort of the, the sweet spot there. Let's see. And when it comes to, like, I guess the more, like, literary and adult stuff, um, I like stuff that's weird, <laughs> which is sort of a really a bad way to describe it. Like, I have a book coming out next year called Here and Now and Then by a guy named Mike Chen, and it is a a sci-fi novel about a time travel agent who goes to the past chasing a fugitive, gets stuck there, raises a family and is trapped there for almost two decades. And then, you know, right in the heat of things falling apart with his wife and his daughter starting to hate him, he gets rocketed back to the future and is reunited with his family that he had in the future that he forgot about. So it's all about him trying to balance these two families and take care of his daughter in the past. And when his daughter gets erased from the timeline by his job, he has to break all the laws of time travel to go basically go save her. And it's this book that's it's a sci-fi novel, but the sci-fi doesn't matter because it's all about the family and like the emotions. And that's what I like, you know, because it's it's sci-fi, but not really. It's literary, but also genre. So stuff that sort of crams lots of weird things together when it comes to adult stuff. That's what I like. And it's really hard to define. Like I do get a lot of people pitching me like literary and commercial stuff, but I don't know if there's not like a 
weird thing going on in the background, it's it's going to be hard for me to uh, buy into. Like another good example really quick. I have this book coming out next year called The the 15 Wonders of Daniel Green by a woman named Erica Murphy. And it's a literary novel about a family and a farm and a small community. But it just happens to have a main character who makes crop circles for a living and travels around the country making crop circles. He's getting ready to make his last crop circle, but then he falls in love with the farmer's daughter and he decides he's going to, is he going to stay there? Is he not going to stay there? What's going to go on? So it's literary novel, but there happens to be some guy making crop circles. Uh, dang, crop circling. I didn't even realize that was like a thing. Well, duh, it is. And it just, just <laughs> doesn't hit you till you mention it. You know what I mean? All right. So that's really awesome. Thank you for those examples. Can we jump into querying? Can you yeah, give sure. us like advice or like even if you have examples of query letters that really stood out to you and you're like, holy shit, this blew my mind. This is the way all query letters should be written. Like, do you have any examples like that? I do. I do. Let me. Oh, well, please share, darling. Yeah. Let me load. Can I load up a couple? Oh, here? my God. Are you serious? Can you? Yeah. Are you really? Oh, my God. Yeah, yes, boo-boo. Thank you, boo. So, <laughs> so while these, while, while I load these up on my computer, um, I'll talk about what I like to see and what I think yeah. works best. Oh my gosh. Thank um, you for being so freaking generous. No, my pleasure. Um, so there's an agent who I like a lot. His name's Gordon Warnock. And I quote him all the time whenever I'm discussing how to write query letters. And sometimes I think people think I made this up. So I'm just putting it out there that it, this is all him. He likes to talk about the best query letters being the hook, the book, and the cook. Um, so the hook is like that two sentence, maybe it's a one sentence blip that describes your entire novel and uses the category, the genre, the title, the word count, comp titles, everything in one little sentence there. And my favorite example from recent memory is one of my authors, Jill Bagagunski, wrote this book called Mammoth that comes out. Oh, goodness. When does it come out? It comes out in uh, November, I think, with Turner Publishing. Uh, and it's about this teen girl who, you know, she's a plus sized girl and wants to be a, a fashion blogger, but is also really into paleontology, and wants to grow up to be a paleontologist. Uh, and she wins a trip to an Ice Age dig site oh. for the summer where she's going to dig up mammoth bones and she's all excited. It's going to be great. Um, and when she pitched it to me and I'm trying to find it right now and I will in a minute. So excuse the, no, please. No worries. I'm just like thinking, damn, how do these authors think of such brilliant and different background settings? You know, like that crop circle that I got mammoth digging and what, (laughs) like, I'm just like, where, where, how, Oh my gosh. Makes me feel so not creative. You know what I mean? <laughs> Damn, I'm, I'm excited to hear what so, she came up with. Well, so with Mammoth, I can't find the exact hook line that she sent me, but one of the hook that I was using to describe it was I was ex- talking to editors about it as uh, Jurassic Park meets Dumplin'. Oh. Which was like the best hook you could possibly ask for. And the hook that she sent me, it went along something like, you know, a plus size teenage fashion blogger slash aspiring paleontologist lands a summer scholarship to an Ice Age dig site and discovers her paleontology hero might be anything but and that the dig site is in serious trouble. Jurassic Park meets Dumplin'. Damn. That was the sort of partial hook there. So you have the hook, book, cook. So hook is that little blip 
Uh, and I'll read some better ones uh, in a minute, some ones that actually came from query letters. Uh, the book is like two paragraphs that describe the actual novel. Um, it would be what like your jacket copy would look like. You know, if you oh, go to a bookstore, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you flip over to the back, that's your jacket copy. Uh, and the cook is you. Um, you know, who are you? And I feel like a lot of writers struggle with this part. Because they feel like they have to be like, you know, I've written X or I've been published here. Or I've done this and that. And that stuff is great, but not everybody has that. Um, what's more important is to talk about who you are as a person because the the agent-author relationship is so personal, you know, like yeah. you're going you're to talk all the time. I kind of want to know you're someone I want to talk all the time with. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Personality. Yeah. Yeah, drop something in about your personality. When I'm not busy writing, I can be found playing video games or I like going fishing or mm-hmm. you know, I'm a librarian, you know, whatever it is. Some, something interesting about you um, that makes me want to talk to you, you know, well, outside I love that. of your book. Yeah. So in terms of like perfect pitches, let me see. Let me read. Here, I can read two. Let's see. Okay, so this one is for Samira Ahmed's Love, Hate, and Other Filters. Oh my gosh, yes. Samira is one of the listeners that we met in the Chicago meetup who was speaking such amazing things about you. And she's also in our Facebook group. So that's awesome. I'm so excited. Yes. (laughs) Oh, well, yes, she is so great. So her query letter, uh, I'm going to skip part of it because we originally found each other in a, uh, a Twitter contest. So she mentions that in her first paragraph. So... Yeah, I'll start where the query starts. Uh, dear, dear Mr. Smith, uh, 17-year-old American-born Mayaziz lives between worlds, between the proper world her parents expect for their good Indian Muslim daughter and the one she envisions for herself, between her small Midwestern town and her dream of going to film school in New York, uh, between the mundane reality of her everyday and her imagination where she gets advice from – Oh, yeah, that's right. This part's not in the book anymore. Okay. <laughs> From Isla Loon and Holly Golightly, between her conflicted longing for Homecoming King and the suitable boy. With the help and humor of her two best friends, Maya navigates a senior year that's enlivened by teen angst, romance, and a bit of magical realism, swimming lessons at a secret pond, but a suicide bomber disrupts it all. Told via brief interchapters, uh, the aftermath of this act of domestic terrorism has repercussions in Maya's small town, changing her life forever. This insular story builds to the bombing and delves into the genesis and aftermath in ways both intimate and profound. So this is the book section. Um, the hook section is this. Uh, Swimming Lessons, complete at 80,000 words, was one of the three finalists for the 2015 Sheehan YA Book Prize. It is a contemporary young adult story with a whiff of the love that split the world meets Quantico. So there's her comp titles. Set in a space where cultures collide, where the definitions of self and others are blurred, and where last names can be a threat. Uh, and then in terms of the um, the cook, uh, she says, I was born in Bombay, India, and currently live in Chicago. I've also lived in Vermont, New York City, and Kwai, where I spent a year with my husband and two young children searching for the perfect mango. Uh, I received my BA and MAT from the University of Chicago and taught high school English for seven years. Just looking at that, nothing in there says anything about her as a writer. This is just her as a person. Um, then she goes on to say, you know, my creative nonfiction has appeared in Jaggerty Lit and Entropy. Um, but, you know, her cook section isn't all about, you know, these are all my writing accomplishments. It's her accomplishments, who she is. Uh, and that makes that makes her interesting. Oh, that was so now, good. You might have noticed while I was 
Yeah, and like while I was reading this, like, you know, there's a different title. It talks about magical realism. You know, mm-hmm. this book had some edits. You know, there were some changes. So it used to be called Swimming Lessons. It is not anymore. <laughs> Damn, that's so wow, that was really good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Quickly jumping in, comp titles is what you compare your book to that are super popular that's already been out there, is it? Yes. Well, it doesn't have to be in the book world, because the other one you gave an example of Jurassic Park. Well, yeah. And well, yeah, you know, and, but like Quantico, for example, from Samira. You right, know, right. That's a, true. Quantico. Yes, that's yeah. true. That's true. Okay. That's awesome. Because I've heard people say comp titles and I'm like, what is a comp title? So that's basically a must when it comes to querying, just so that you guys as agents have an idea of what to expect or a better visual. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, comp titles also, they're not just for like, I don't know, the agent helping and everything. I, I feel like they also show that you're well-read in your category or your genre, what you're, what you're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like when I get like a pitch for like a YA book, I want to see that the person reads YA, you know, I don't want them saying like, Oh, my YA novel is perfect for fans of Charles Dickens or something. You know, like I want (laughs) to know that they, they actively read in that sort of world because like, I really do believe that if you want to write in a certain category, you have to read those books and that's, what's going to make you, you know, a better writer. If you want to throw more examples, I also welcome that. Yeah, I could do I could do one more. Thank um, you. Yeah, so I had a book come out recently called When the Beat Drops by Anna Hecker. It just came out last week. Let me read this really quick. Dear Eric, since you seem to have a special place in your heart for the intersection of heart-pounding music and YA literature, I thought you might be interested in When the Beat Drops, a coming-of-age story set in the electronic dance music scene. Uh, in When the Beat Drops, introverted jazz nerd Mira wants nothing more than to ace her audition to the prestigious Fulton Jazz Conservatory. She plans her summer practicing trumpet and composition, but her popular older sister drags her into a different world, one of underground parties and packed music festivals, endless beats, and outsized personalities. Mira falls in love with the music and with Derek, a gorgeous 21-year-old promoter with an interest in her burgeoning DJ skills, but her sister's more into taking Molly and partying all night. With her conservatory audition looming and her DJ career blowing up, Mira needs to choose between the dream she's always wanted and the one that could make her a star and find a way to slow her sister's role before it's too late. This 75,000-word YA contemporary is pitch perfect, meets the song will save your life, set against the gritty, glittery, and wildly popular backdrop of EDM. Uh, I'm looking for a partner who can help me grow my career with original works in both YA and upmarket women's fiction. You mentioned that you love contemporary that can make you cry, and I'd like to think this could eck out a few tears and maybe a little laughter, too. God, that was good. Holy crap. That's bringing me back to my Burning Man days and I'm missing it so badly. Uh, That's freaking awesome. That was so good. Okay. What was your first reaction when you, when you read that? Oh, I wanted to read it immediately. I've been tweeting a lot about how I wanted to read like an almost famous esque book. Yeah. You know, this sort of filled that for me. She also had that great little personal hook there where she says, you know, like, hey, I know you like books that make you cry. Hey, I know you like books about music. So she she knew who she was pitching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She really did <laughs> and, her research. Yeah, she actually pitched this to me on my birthday. I remember uh, she pitched it to me on my birthday and I asked to read it immediately. And yeah. <laughs> when she says she's looking for a partner to help develop her career. Mm-hmm. I know every literary agent is different. Everyone has a different style. Some people work really hands-on. Some people are totally hands-off because their mm-hmm. authors like don't like people up in their space. So what for you, how do you work with your authors to develop their careers? I'm the kind of agent that likes to work on the next book. 
I'm not like a one and done sort of person. So, you know, we'll start polishing up that second book as soon as possible, as soon as they want to. Mm. I'll kick around different ideas with them. You know, maybe they are not quite sure what the second book's going to be. So we'll mm. go over different concepts. We'll talk about places that they can potentially pitch freelance stuff to. Some of my authors write nonfiction. So we talk about spots I could pitch essays, pitch blog posts, things like that. That's sort of the kind of stuff that we do. And we also help develop their online presence and make sure that they're visual and out there for people. I'm sort of lucky in the fact that like, I do a lot of events for my own writing. So I try to loop in my writers whenever I can. Oh, that's so sweet. So we'll talk a lot about events and conferences and things like that they should be at. So it's a lot of advising. A lot of it isn't super hands-on. You know, I can't write the essays for them or make mm-hmm. the websites for them, but that's sort of what we're there for. How much of your input and influence do you have when you're looking at their manuscript and then you telling them to, let's say, improve this part of the manuscript or that part before sending it out to publishers? Mm-hmm. How much of an impact do you have there? I like to think a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah, like some, but you know, like some authors uh, need more work than others. Some, mm-hmm. some don't need any work. And you know, every now and again, you'll get someone who disagrees and says, this isn't really what I want. This isn't really what I see happening with my work. Maybe I need to find someone else. And that's okay. Those sort of breakups happen. Sometimes your editing taste doesn't gel with whatever they're working on next. So let's say after you read their query letter and then you bring them on and you guys agree to work together let's say the manuscript is cleaned up, everything is good. Then what do you do next? Like, do you shepherd that to an editor? That's another part of the fun game that I like quite a (laughs) bit. So I like to work with my authors regarding who I want to pitch the book to. So we'll look over. Most of the writers I tend to end up working with are pretty savvy when it comes to the publishing world. Like they, you know, if you're on social media and you're paying attention, you kind of know who is out there. So we'll, we'll kick around like, you know, I dream that this book would land with X publisher. Oh, I like this editor uh, a whole lot. Oh, I like the way they do publicity at this particular publisher. So we'll kick around where we see the book. um, And then I'll approach maybe my top 10, top 12 sort of places. I like to send out pitch emails. I write really funny pitch letters. I'm rather proud of them. Or I do lots of phone calls. I'll uh, do a lot of brain picking for books that are Maybe they're a little different. Maybe it's something I haven't quite worked on before. For example, right now I'm working on a – actually, I have a book coming out in November called uh, 8-Bit Apocalypse, which is all about the history of the video game Missile Command. Um, Yeah, not a lot of people know that the the guy who created Missile Command – I don't think it's right to say he went insane, but he he became really obsessed with nuclear war because the game was meant to protest it. And that's why he made Missile Command. Um, So as the game got more popular and influenced the whole video game world, he experienced this downward spiral of like obsession and sort of uh, like crushing sadness of what was happening to the world. So it's about his story. But I'd never worked on something like this before. I mostly worked in YA. I know all the YA editors. So I had to do a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails to say, like, hey, do you like video games? <laughs> do you want to talk about this? So it's a mix of pitching people I know already and I get along with really well and a mix of doing lots of research and making random phone calls and saying, hey, can I pick your brain about the people that work at your publishing house? Hey, who at your publishing house likes this? For the most part, people are really receptive over that because everyone just wants to make good books. <laughs> 
thank you for breaking that down for me because it was always a bit confusing just for me to kind of like wrap my head around because I, I would just talk to authors mostly, right? And mm-hmm. then so I understand like, you know, their process, but then after they're done with their book, I, it's just kind of a mystery to me. So thank you again for no, no problem shedding light on that. Do you mind kind of pulling back? What are you most excited about right now? And this encompasses everything. Oh man. Um, well, I guess in my author life, you know, I, I had a book just come out called The Girl in the Grove. It came out like two weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So that <laughs> book is really exciting for me. You know, I put a lot of my heart into it. And I had an adoption anthology come out last year. The whole goal for the adoption anthology was that I wanted to take whatever the book made and use that money to do something good for teenagers who are maybe aging out of the foster care system mm. or organizations that work with adoptees. Yeah, you know, the book didn't sell gangbusters or anything. Uh, it did sell enough that, you know, we got a decent royalty check and I'm sending out 300 books Damn. to youth centers that work with foster kids oh uh, my over God. the next two weeks. Congratulations. Yeah, so. That's really incredible. Seriously. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. And then in terms of publishing and the stuff that I'm working on, Samira Ahmed, her next book, Interment, comes out next year takes place in this speculative United States that feels like it could be a little too real, Mm. where a tyrannical monster becomes president and puts Muslims in an internment camp on the West Coast in California. It's about a teen girl who gets put into that internment camp and leads the resistance from inside. It's really badass. It'll be out with Little Brown. Hopefully we get to share the cover soon. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. And then... It's hard because I keep trying to think about like what I'm allowed to talk about, (laughs) what what has been announced. I will be announcing a book uh, this week um, called um, Meet Me, uh, Meet Me Halfway. It's by Tom Ryan and Robin Stevenson. They're both writers from Canada, and it's about two gay cousins who are on a road trip to Pride in Toronto. And it's this really sweet, quiet LGBTQ novel that's about these two gay teenagers living their life. It's not a book about pain or anything like that. Don't get me wrong, I think those YA novels about pain for marginalized writers are super important because it hopefully breeds empathy in readers Mm -hmm. that are reading them. But at the same time, I do want to see books where marginalized teenagers are just living their lives and Mm -hmm. being happy because ideally that's what they should be experiencing. Yes. And this is one of those books where it's just like a charming joy to read. And we're announcing that this week and it'll be out with Running Press in 2020. Damn, that's so exciting. Uh, So you have a lot happening for you and you're doing all of this out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? Yes, right in the Midwest. That's so awesome. And it's a beautiful town, too. How are you able to do that? You don't have to be in the office. You can work remotely. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of the many joys of the Internet. All the editors that I work with, some of them I've never even met before. And we email all the time. We talk on Twitter DM. All of my authors, we're all friends on Google Chat, so we will G-chat all day. Man, I have have some authors that live in Canada, some authors that live in the UK. All these relationships are maintained digitally. So I work from home, so that that part gets a little lonely sometimes. You know, I talk to my dog a lot. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it also means I get to be with my baby and my wife all the time, which is also excellent. So for you as a father figure, you growing up, was there like a very traditional, okay, father goes outside of the house to work? Because that's how my dad was raised. And he's trying to wrap his head around dads who are able to stay home. 
How do you work in your job and also making sure to have, you know, hopefully date nights with your wife and like yeah. making her feel appreciated and loved <laughs> and beautiful and sexy, fine. Mm-hmm. And also being an awesome dad. It's funny. So like growing up back at home, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm adopted. My family's Irish Catholic. It was definitely very much a traditional like Mm -hmm. mom stays home, dad goes to work. And then when we were a little older, my mom got a job at the high school and was working as the (laughs) as as nightmarish as this might sound for someone who uh, is a teenager. My mom became the attendance lady when I was in high school. So that was uh, like, do you know that Joel cut class the other day? Mom, don't, don't tell me this. I don't know this. Um, <laughs> so when we were a little older, she, she, you know, she went back to work and stuff, but yeah, no, we, we definitely don't have that dynamic here. I try to keep it nine to five at home, but that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the agent ever will tell you that they work until midnight. <laughs> yeah, that's often. true. It's partially my fault and also partially uh, the baby's fault for keeping me up. How dare you blame somebody that's not your own size? <laughs> that's so cute, but that's awesome. Like how much, how many hours a day are you able to spend with a family though? All day, really. We'll, okay. I'll cut out from sitting in front of my computer and we'll go out to lunch or we'll go take Aww. a walk. Unless there's like a phone call that I have to make with an editor or some sort of appointment scheduled, there's never any like, I need to be in front of my computer. I can leave. My authors will be okay. (laughs) Oh my God. What a dream. My gosh. That's an amazing job to have. And you also have time for yourself to write. Sometimes. Um, (laughs) Not not a lot lately now now that we have the baby. So I'm, I'm taking a little break. My agent has my current YA novel out on submission. So fingers are crossed, but if she doesn't sell it. I'm, I'm going to take a little breather and, and focus on my, my authors for a bit. Oh gosh. Okay. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed as well. Oh, thank you. I'm also wanting to know about your podcast. I see you also co-host Hey YA. So I'm assuming yeah. that you also record from home. Yes. <laughs> That's so fun. Oh my goodness. What joy do you find most from doing your podcast? And do you feel also like it's helped you with your voice as an author to get your work out there as well? I don't know so much about getting my work out because I I mostly just talk about other people. Um, But personally, I kind of believe that's the best way to get the word out. Yeah, as in like awareness of you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm I'm a big fan of the way you promote yourself is promoting other people. Like that's how I think the best way to promote other people is. I don't know. Like the best thing about that podcast is it's just me and my co-host Kelly Jensen, like talking about what we read over the past two weeks for an hour. It goes by really fast because I read a ton. I don't know. It's really, it's surprisingly really easy. The only time it ever gets really challenging is that Kelly is way smarter than me. Um, (laughs) She has like this, just this brilliant academic mind. So like she'll find some like really intense, interesting article about, you know, children's literature that she'll want to like deconstruct. And then I have to ask her what deconstruct means. And, <laughs> uh, you know, she, she's just on another plane than I am. Um, but I think we bring this good dynamic of like me being like the fanboy and her being just like also a big fan, but you know, super brilliant. Can teach a college course on it kind of person. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, that sounds so fun. And do you guys do your own editing or do you guys have that sourced out? Someone else does that for us at Team Book Riot. Someone over there does it. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, lucky you guys. Again, like I don't know how you're able to carry so many roles and balance it so damn well and kill it at each and every one. Oh, it's my it's my wife. You know, it's really all her. 
when I decided to do the agenting thing and quit my job and make no money for like a year and a half, she was the one that was like, hey, don't worry, I'll pay the rent. We won't <gasps> have any stress. Oh my and... gosh, she's so sweet. Do you mind me asking what she does? She's a social worker, so her focus oh is working with veterans. She's a damn angel, let me tell you. Oh, you better yeah. be kissing her toes every night. <laughs> Make sure your woman is appreciated and feels loved. I do. She is great. I'm sure you're amazing. I hear the best things. <laughs> All right. So before we jump into listener questions, is there a moment that you can share that was a really dark moment in your life that you felt like you almost couldn't get through it, but you finally did. And if you had one of those moments, could you share it and how you got yourself out of it? Mm. Oh boy. Um, so like, you know, like, like growing up, my sister, uh, had, had sort of like a, a really rough patch when we were, we were teenagers. Mm. Um, and you know, she had my nephew Jordan, let me see when she was, I think she was like 16 when mm-hmm. she had Jordan. And like, that was a really rough time for my family because my sister was like running away a lot and she was really wrestling a lot with uh, like identity issues as like an adopted person. And also you're, you're saying that your family raised you guys as Irish Catholic, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that must've been really tough too, on top of that, like stricter rules as, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she had, she had some problems. And, uh, you know, at one point he had gotten like taken away from our family and it was this whole awful thing where my parents had to really fight to bring him back home. And that was, that was not easy. Cause I am not really the sort of person that, uh, I guess deals with that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's part of the Irish Catholic upbringing where it's like, you know what, I'm going to bottle all these feelings up and just cram mm-hmm. them deep inside and let them out at an inappropriate time. And how old were you? My, uh, would you mind me asking uh, at that time? 18. Okay. So you're older by two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So gotcha. Was, uh, yeah. So that, that was a, that was a rough time. And I don't know, you just, you just push through that stuff. Um, it's, it's a sort of, so it's not something that you ever talked about with your family directly. No, not really. Usually it's, uh, mm. when we would talk about it, it's just like, Hey, I'm still mad about this. Oh, okay. Right. You know, that's okay. Of, so there's no further it. dissecting or like, you know what, let me hear you out. How are you feeling? And yeah. not really a back and forth is more not of a really. statement. Um, but this is um. sort of why I, I, I work on like, my books about like adoption and stuff now. Mm. Um, that's where like I'm putting those issues and, and trying to do stuff because, you know, like I want kids that grew up like my sister, you know, wrestling with, uh, you know, identity and, and, and all these sort of issues that sort of push them to maybe lash out to, you know, have these books that maybe will help them out, you know, like Mm -hmm. seeing yourself someplace represented really well, you know, I think can, can do wonders for a kid. Hopefully my books do that. If they don't, maybe future books I represent will, but yeah. If you had access to books that you basically push for now, back when you were 18, how do you think it would have affected everything? Hmm. I don't know if it would have affected me as much because I don't know, I was pretty well-rounded about the whole adoption thing. Like I was never... I'm going to lash out and be angry about the deal. Right. But, you know, if I had them, I probably would have given them to my sister and be like, hey, you know, it's not all that bad. Let's read this. Right. How are you and your sister right now? Oh, we're OK. We talk now and again. <laughs> oh, OK. And, and are you I mean, are you close to your uh, nephew or niece? Oh, yeah. No, they're the, he's obsessed. <laughs> OK. OK. Amazing. Then I'm sorry. Duh. You were saying he so nephew. Doi. Um, I'm like nephew or niece. Thank you for sharing that. I know I got a little personal, but I appreciate that. And um, that's hard communicating. 
Eric, uh, you have been amazing. Do you mind if I squeeze in some listener questions? Yeah, please do. Okay, we have a lot. So I'm just going to pick out a few. So we have Melissa C. who said she knows that you represent wonderful own voices authors like Samira Ahmed and Katie Gardner. As a disabled writer working on an own voices YA novel, she would love to know what do you feel is the most important part of a novel that's written by someone who shares their character's marginali- marginalization? Oh, wow. Right? That is that is a good question. I don't know, maybe, maybe trying to make it uh, so it's, I, I don't want to say relatable. I feel like that's the wrong word. Um, but it's, it's written in a way that, you know, even though it's a story that's very close and about you, um, anyone can pick it up and understand that story. Um, I think that's something that Samira and Katie do do so well in their writing. Um, and I, I've gotten, I've been fortunate enough to hear a lot of that because I Twitter stalk the keywords to see people talking about the books, um, where people are saying like, you know, like, oh, even though I don't share uh, this particular, you know, background, particular trait, um, I feel like I understand it a lot better. Um, and that's what I think books like this are so good at doing. It's, it's making that, that empathetic connection with readers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just, that's just so huge. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's what I like to see uh, okay. when, it, when it comes to those. The representation there obviously is the most important thing, but making sure that that gets across to the readers is just such a big deal. Mm, awesome. Next one, we have Allison Elaine Warsham. She says, yay, I started following him on Twitter because of his adorable Corgi and kept Aww. following him because he's <laughs> so funny and knows his stuff. So her question for you is, as a white cisgender person, I have a hard time writing outside of my lane, mainly because I'm worried it isn't my place. Is there any advice you can give about writing diversely while also being respectful of the fact that you are not part of those marginalized groups? I think a big part of that is getting beta readers. Um, just like, please, uh, get those mm. beta readers and, you know, even understand that, you know, you might get a ton of people reading and reviewing your work and, and trying to make sure that it's, you know, as you know, respectful as possible. You, you still might get stuff wrong. It is, it is very possible. You have to be, you know, okay, uh, with knowing that. I think the, the trick there is, is asking yourself whether or not it's like your story to tell when it comes to those sort of stories. Um, you know, like, are you writing a story that, you know, has these diverse characters and that's awesome and wonderful, but are you writing a story with diverse characters that are experiencing something that's particularly close to those kind of people that maybe you wouldn't have that experience with? Mm-hmm. Are you writing a book about the pain of being this marginalized person? Well, you know, it's probably going to be really, really hard to mirror that the way someone who has actually lived through those things is. So yeah, like, Make sure that the story is something that I don't want to say that you should be writing because that's not quite right there. I guess it's a story that you can write. If that makes sense. I don't yes. know. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. it does. It does. And I'm sure she's going to be super grateful for that. Cat Show would love to ask you oh, who, Kat. who is more helpful as an assistant, Langston or Augie? Hmm. Uh, maybe Augie right now. I'm sorry, Langston. But I feel like Augie communicates a little bit better <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, so I think I think Augie. Plus, Augie has a Twitter account that he works really hard to maintain. <laughs> done and done. We have, okay, so I'm skipping quite a few people who basically are chiming in to say that they're so excited for you to be on the show and oh, that they love you. So we have Samira Ahmed, who did jump in. <laughs> 
So there we go. It's so funny because we were just talking about Samira. So she says that Eric is her wonderful agent, but she thinks it'd be great to ask you how you help authors build their careers and guide them along their path. So we've had that discussion, but then she also mentioned she thinks it's super important, especially for people looking for representation, to consider the role your agent plays in your long-term career, not just a single book. Eric is always thoughtful about this. So if there's any any other things you want to add to this, that'd be awesome. And if not, that's cool too, because I know we already discussed that a lot. Yeah, you know, it's just I feel like it's just all about bouncing those ideas off your agent. You know, like you're kicking around this book that you're not quite sure if it's right for you, if it's going to keep pushing you in the direction you want to be pushed in, um, you know, share that stuff. Um, I've, I've actually heard a lot of stories about authors who are like afraid to talk to their agents about stuff. Um, oh, what? yeah, I know. What? Don't, I'm don't, like, it's like having a relationship happen. and not being able to talk to your significant other basically. I know. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Don't let that happen. Just discuss, 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 because that's the only way to make sure you guys are, are navigating all that stuff. Okay, perfect. Hold on, let me skip through. We've discussed this, discussed this. Um, Okay, so Ellie Cipher said she's so excited for this episode and there's like eight exclamation marks. (laughs) She says positive voices can be so hard to find in the confusing, tortuous and anxiety riddled labyrinth that is publishing. So thank you, Eric. My question is basically, how do you do it? How to stay human in an industry that can feel at times so dehumanizing with goalposts always moving and the only certainty is uncertainty. Thank you. And another three exclamation marks. That was a sweet question. Okay. That is a sweet question. Um, staying positive. Oh boy. Uh, you know, I feel like, so I love social media and I love Twitter and and all that stuff. And like, I post a lot of like happy stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, that's what you share, you know, like I don't post the stuff that's not so great. You know, I don't post the, the books that don't sell. I don't post about the clients that I occasionally lose. Um, that's stuff I keep to myself. Um, mostly because I don't feel like it helps anybody. Um, the way I stay positive is that like, I just have, I just surround myself with good people. You know, I surround myself with writers who are working really hard. Um, I have great friends. Um, I have a very supportive spouse who pushes me to, to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's other people that help me stay supportive. Um, so I can't, I can't recommend enough having a good community around you when it comes to your writing. Um, uh, a great writing community, beta readers, uh, people on Twitter, even that you, that you talk to regularly. Um, those are the people that are going to boost you up and keep you, I guess, not as cynical about publishing that some people get. Um, mm-hmm. cause yeah, there are, there is a lot of, uh, I don't know, not great stuff being said on the old internet by people in the industry. And, ah, we're making books. Shouldn't this be fun? <laughs> so, so find people that have the sort of similar attitudes and I think, I think it'll help. Okay. Love that. All right. So next one, we have Karis Rogerson. She said, Oh my God. Yay. Yay. I, I, like all caps and exclamation marks. <laughs> and she says, I am a huge fan of Eric's not only because of his author's books and his awesome social media presence, but because he was one of the first people in YA Twitter world to make me feel like I wasn't just some weirdo, but like Aww. a legit blogger person. I would love to know a little about anthology editing. How do you go about finding the authors to write the stories on the theme? Oh, yeah, these are good. Uh, where does agent representation come into it and how do you find an editor to publish the work? Oh, that was good. That is so hard. So, so with welcome home, 
Um, so welcome home. I was on my way from a conference in Minneapolis to a conference, I don't know, like an hour or so outside of Minneapolis. And my, my agent was driving me, we were driving down together, uh, and we were in the car for like a solid hour and I'm like, Hey, I have a book idea. And I told her about the anthology. That is not how you should pitch your agent. Don't, <laughs> don't wait until they're trapped to tell them about your book idea. Um, but that, that is basically what I did, and she sort of guided me through how it would be to, to put these things together. So basically I had to just like very awkwardly reach out to people that I thought might have a story to tell, um, not knowing their history. I mean like it's not like every YA author out there has a Wikipedia page that says like they're an adopted person or they have an adopted kid. So it was lots of like emailing authors and being like, hey, does – do your parents not look like you? <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, but that was the, that was really the only way to, to sort of find that, that genuine, those genuine voices I wanted. So I, I did reach out to a couple authors who I knew personally that were adopted or had written mm. stories about adoption to say like, Hey, do you know anyone that I could reach out to about this? So it was a lot of, a lot of playing telephone. Um, a lot of like surprisingly popular people helping me. I got Gail Foreman helped me find somebody, uh, wow. Meyer helped me find somebody Damn, uh, boo -boo. just pulling all the strings. Oh my gosh. It was unbelievable. I don't know them. Like, I don't know them, but I sent them emails out of nowhere and they, they responded. So it was a lot of curating like that. I'm hoping to announce an anthology that I just sold by one of my authors next week that, how do I put it without giving away what it is? It has to do with, it has to do with like relationships and, and race in a way that's very specific. And that was another one that required a lot of awkward Facebook lurking on authors we were friends with to see if they would they would be a good fit. So it's hard. It, it requires a lot of talking and a lot of reaching out and a lot of tricky conversations. When it comes to how to sell it, eventually, hopefully, you'll have an agent that will sell the book for you. And then it becomes the agent's job to worry about that stuff. You know, like you as the author shouldn't have to worry about individual agreements with the individual authors for mm. the content. Like that's just a lot of like unnecessary busy work. That's that's the agent's job. Make the agent deal with that nonsense. Finding an editor again, that's the, that's the agent's thing. The agent will find the right person. So are you supposed to be represented already for like a standalone book and then introduce your anthology idea to your agent? Or is mm. it I or have people ever pitched just based off of an anthology? Uh, I did sign an anthology project recently. Um, oh, and that person has never been represented by you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they just don't have straight a book up out Oh, um, okay. But it's like, but it's like nonfiction, and it's like essays from lots of other people, and she's like well published in nonfiction. So it's it's kind of a trickier one. Um, I don't know. I'm I I feel I feel like if someone had pitched me a YA collection with a lot of really great names in it. And that particular author didn't have their own standalone book out yeah, yet. Yeah. I would still consider it because an anthology doesn't just sell because of the one author putting it together. It sells because of the weight of all the people collectively. In it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if it's there are a lot of good voices in it, I think you're fine to pitch an anthology just as is. Um, but it, it, they they have to be in there. Interesting. Okay, that's so fascinating to me. Um, thank you for diving into that. I really appreciate that. Okay, so now Alyssa Coleman says that. You are such a supportive voice in the community, and she's so happy you're going to be on the show. You wear so many hats, agent, writer, editor, husband, dad, and dog dad. 
How do you balance and protect your professional time versus your personal time, especially now that you work from home? Do you have any tips for writers balancing full-time jobs? So we already covered the first part of the question, but jumping in um, to, to link up with her second and last question, do you have any advice for our listeners listening in who have to, you know, have a full-time job and then come back and make sure their family's taken care of, you know, emotionally and, you know, psychologically and yeah, all that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of, of making sure you have that time to set aside. Um, you know, like it's it's really easy to just, I don't know, hey, I've I've had a really long day at work. I'm just going to sit down and watch Netflix for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I get it. Self-care is super important. You know, if that's what you need, you know, definitely do it. Um, but don't just do it just because you want to relax. Uh, if you could potentially use that time to, you know, go do the cliche thing, go to Starbucks, work on your book. You just kind of have to want it, you know, bad enough that you find the time there. Um, sometimes that means sacrificing going out with your friends. You know, sometimes that means uh, you're not going to go see the latest three hour Marvel movie and instead you're going to go work on your book. <laughs> it is unfortunately a little bit about sacrifice yep. in, in that regard. But, you know, if you want it bad enough, you're you're definitely going to chase it. Oh, that was so good. All right. Last and final question from Becca Mix. She said to please ask you how your Corgi is doing because she is very invested (laughs) and thanks. (laughs) He is doing quite okay. He is out in the hallway right now. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's wrestling a little bit with the new baby in the life. Like he did. He definitely gets jealous. If we're sitting on the floor with the baby, he will come over and like wedge himself between us and the baby. He's having a hard time with that, but you know, he he loves that baby. He licks the baby a lot. Cute. Oh my God. (laughs) How long have you had Augie before your baby came in? Three years. So Okay, so he's used uh, to being like the star child. Okay, the baby. He's like, what the hell is this new creature crying and screaming all the time? The fun story of Augie, um, and I messed up earlier. I said that Inked came out in 2012. It came out in 2015. Oh, okay. When Inked was getting ready to come out, uh, you know, I was talking nonstop to my then fiance, uh, Nina, about how I wanted a corgi. Oh, one day I'm going to get a corgi. One day we move, I'll get a corgi, blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know what? If Inked becomes a bestseller, I will buy you a corgi. And I was like, oh, man. So I worked, I worked really hard <laughs> on the, any marketing I could do. It didn't become a bestseller, but she bought me the corgi anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. I Okay. Nina is amazing. She really is a goddess. Oh, my gosh. That is so freaking sweet, dude. Like, you're you're so lucky. You found a very incredible human being as your life partner. Truly. She is great. Damn. All right. Eric, you've been amazing. Oh, thank you. Dude, thank you. Seriously. And I'm making you sit in the nursery. Oh my God. Like for this long. And I, I seriously, you have no idea. Thank you so <laughs> much. It was so fun having you on the show and I love talking with you. Yes, this was awesome. And hopefully I will see you at Book Things in New York. And that wraps up our episode with Eric Smith. Eric, you wonderful, majestic unicorn being, I cannot thank you enough for being so generous and transparent throughout this entire episode. I am so happy we got to chat on the show and thank you again for your time. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to Eric over on Twitter at Eric Smith Rocks. Don't forget to also head over to his show notes page to download the PDF that I'm preparing. It'll have some notes and I'm also transcribing the query letter examples that he reads in the episode so it's easier for you to pull up as a reference if you're feeling confused about approaching your own query letter. 
So again, be sure to look out for the downloadable link over at his show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Eric dash Smith. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support and taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. And we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.